0: Hello and welcome to our podcast, Japanese Leadership Looking Back at the G7 Summit. I'm Fred Katayama, Executive Vice President at the U.S.-Japan Council. The free and open Indo-Pacific. We're increasingly hearing that term nowadays, aren't we, from presidents and prime ministers and the like. FOLP, as it's also called, is a concept created by former Prime Minister Shinzo Abe back in 2016. It has since been adopted around the world. It made headlines again in March when Prime Minister Fumio Kishida outlined plans to re-engage the FOP in a speech he gave in New Delhi, India. Then at the G7 summit in May, Kishida stressed the importance of the FOP in fostering international collaboration. We'll explore the concept behind the FOP and how it relates to policy. We'll also consider the impact it can have on the global South nations. To help us better understand FOP, I'm now joined by Takako Hikotani. She is a professor at Gakshuin University and senior fellow with the Asian Society Policy Institute. She was formerly an associate professor of political science at Columbia University, which happens to be my alma mater, where I've met her several times. So it's good to see you again, Takako. Thanks for joining us.
1: Good to see you. Thanks for having me today.
0: So Takako, for the benefit of those of us who aren't aware, just what is a free and open Indo-Pacific and what are the principles behind it?
1: So the principle behind the concept of FOIP or free and open Indo-Pacific is defending freedom and the rule of law and respect for diversity, inclusiveness, and openness. The initial impetus came from a speech that Prime Minister Abe gave at the end of his first administration, which is 2007, August, at the speech in India that he gave which he talked about the confluence of the two seas, the the Indian Ocean and Pacific Ocean. And that started the conversation about how to bring the area, which is the most dynamic region in the area. I think we can say that although the idea was in the works in August 2016 speech that he gave in Africa, where he talked about how he wants to bring uh, the two seas together and to connect Asia and Africa to have the sea, the Indian Pacific Ocean, to be aware there's peace and it's there's where there's a rule-based order. So that's where the concept of why it's free, open, and Indo-Pacific come together. I think it has become more of a shared vision by countries in the region than when it started more out as a Japan's concept going forward.
0: Thanks for that background, Takako. So as you put it, the concept or the original thinking behind FOB dates all the way back to 2007, when Abed talked about the confluence of the Pacific and Indian Oceans. Now, let's fast forward uh, 16 years. Why has Japan's vision of FOIP taken on greater relevance and importance after Russia invaded Ukraine?
1: I think many countries realize that peace cannot be taken for granted and that um, there has to be more interest in how to keep the international order. Um, in place so that people could live peacefully, all countries can live peacefully together. The Indo-Pacific concept in the free and open, especially, was useful as sort of a guiding principle, especially when there was con- considerable discrepancy among different countries about what would be the guiding order, um, guiding principle to guide the countries together. I think people were relatively surprised by the fact that not all countries were on board in terms of how they stand against Russia, for instance and that maybe it's not helpful to have a camp that is democratic and authoritarian. It's also very flexible. That free and open can actually mean many things to many countries, and there isn't like a set definition of what free is supposed to mean or open is supposed to mean. For some countries, it might mean free trade. For countries, it might be more about freedom of speech. So I think that's the utility, and also why it turned out to be more important after the war in Ukraine.
0: You refer to the split between the authoritarian camp and the democratic camp. It was. Amazing just how quickly Prime Minister Kishida went lockstep with the West against Russia over Ukraine. So Takako, Japan introduced the FOB concept, but is it best place to lead the international community towards FOB?
1: I think Japan um, has shown that it could lead the way in, in the case of CPTPP, that there was a lot of disappointment about U.S. pulling out. But I think in some ways, rather surprisingly, Japan was able to step up. So Japan has shown that it has the ability to lead in these kind of efforts. And I think for that reason, um, FOIP and Japan playing a major role in that has been accepted by many other countries.
0: So leadership on CPTPP uh, gave Japan more leadership credibility that then helped out on FOIP. Uh, How can Japan as a leader ensure compliance with international rules?
1: Right. I think, you know, that's a really tricky question because I think the success of FOIP, comes from the fact that it is really not requiring compliance in a certain way. Like it's not like um, penalizing in any way. It's meant to be inclusive and it's supposed to be give the countries freedom to interpret what that means to make it easier to join than not. So I think it's not really about penalty and enforcement. I don't really know if that's what Japan is really good at doing, but I think the inclusivity is something that's very helpful. Um, in this day and age where it's very easy to be excluding other countries. And I think the inclusiveness is something that seems to be wanted in the international community and Japan is taking part by um, showing the taking a lead in Indo-Pacific and free and open Indo-Pacific vision.
0: Let's move on to the connection, uh, the relationship between Japan and India where Abe gave that speech. Uh, these two countries have a close relationship and India currently is the president of the G20. How important is Japan's relationship with India in bringing about international collaboration?
1: Right, um, so I think especially this year, it was very important that Japan was the um, hosted a G7 and India hosted g G20. So at this moment, this year's particularly, I think India's importance was highlighted. India is the largest democracy in the world. And that uh, if Japan, for its part, was the first country in Asia to achieve modernization and embrace democracy. So there's a lot in common. And also for strategic reasons, too, it's very important for Japan to include India. In its efforts. So it's not just FOIP, but also QUAD, which is the dialogue um, between um, India, Japan, Australia, and U.S. It is to make sure that India is in the picture. And uh, and also to figure out a way to include India in as many efforts as possible is very important. And I think it was very significant that at the G7 summit, um, India um, um, was a major participant. And there was a lot of, I think Japan made a huge effort to make sure that India is represented in the um, in the any kind of horror that Japan offers in, in
0: the world, well, Takako, you taught here in New York, so you've got a great sense of American attitudes towards Asian politics. As you know, America had vowed to pivot to Asia, then to rebalance to Asia, but some started to question the U.S. commitment to that region after then President Trump abruptly pulled the U.S. out of the trade pact TPP, and then there was President Biden's recent absence at the ASEAN summit. You think the U.S. government is committed to the rules-based order of the Indo-Pacific region.
1: It is notable that the United States has its own Indo-Pacific strategy, and that's one of the, I shouldn't say few, but continuities between the Trump administration and the Biden administration about the acceptance of the Indo-Pacific strategy. I do think that the U.S. government is committed to a greater rule-based order, and I think by keeping the concept of the free and open Indo-Pacific rather vague, that we're not insistent on the U.S. for... Um, joining CPTPP, for instance, while having that hope there, that I think it makes it easier for the U.S. to be committed in its own way. And hopefully that will be, be, be sort of like a guardrail in case we might see another change of administration in the U.S. And that, um, and for that reason, I think for Japan to have a concept that is more inclusive uh, for the U.S. is very important. But, uh, And I do like to hope that there is an interest in that interest that is not just driven by the fear of China, or the China hawks, that Japan the U.S. will be committed. Because I think it's not really a question of Asia versus somewhere else. I think it's more of a question of domestic versus international engagement within the U.S. And that's something that Japan doesn't really have control over. And But hopefully the U.S. will be um, committed to the world and Asia, especially for, for the point of Japan. But I think the Indo-Pacific concept, we hope, will be a way to make sure that U.S. is uh, committed to the larger region than just Asia per se.
0: So I guess we're seeing Japan rise as a global leader, taking charge with free trade, coming up with a FOIP concept, and sharing knowledge on reducing disaster risk. Learned a lot here. Thanks a lot, Takako. Appreciate it. Thank you. I'm Fred Katayama, and you've been listening to Japanese Leadership, looking back at the G7 Summit. Thanks for joining us.